If you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Galatians, uh, Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 29 this morning. Uh, and if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can find one underneath the chairs, uh, hopefully fairly close to you. Our sermon text is on page 973 to 974, 973 to 974. Uh, our text this morning is really the summary or conclusion of an argument that Paul has been making uh, for quite some time. Uh, for many weeks for us, if you're reading through Galatians, pretty much since chapter 2, verse 16. Uh, so for weeks, we have waded through Paul's arguments that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works of the law. Now, Paul has spent much time on this subject because uh, it appeared that the Galatian Christians were being influenced by bad teaching, uh, counterintuitive teaching that contradicted the message of the gospel, uh, specifically teaching that, uh, that they required these Gentile Christians to obey or observe the Mosaic law. Uh, when you read about works of the law, though, uh, we can apply this very easily to our lives today uh, by instead of saying works of the law, just simply saying good deeds, uh, our good works or our good deeds. Uh, they don't have to specifically be about the Mosaic law, but that was the case for the Gentile Christians. And so it was uh, the, the point that Paul was arguing against. But if one thing is clear from Paul's writings, it is that faith in Jesus specifically is the only way we can be declared righteous before God. And this is crucial because if we misunderstand the message of salvation, we will lead others astray when we attempt to share the gospel with them. We may lead them astray if we are discipling someone in this way. We may lead ourselves away from the message of the gospel by believing in a kind of grace plus works formula. Well, Paul has gone about his argument by contrasting uh, promise and law, promise and law, the promise to Abraham and law that happened 430 years after it. Most recently in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 3, Paul demonstrated that the law was inferior to promise, uh, mainly because the time that it was given was much later uh, but he also said the law was inferior because it was given secondhand by angels and a mediator, Moses, a man, rather than directly from God to the people. Well, through all of this, Paul has argued that the, that promise given to Abraham many years earlier has been fulfilled in Christ, that the blessing promised to Abraham of eternal life has arrived in the coming of Jesus Therefore, the law is no longer needed. The law, Paul says, was given for a limited time to point us to Jesus, the one through whom all these promises have been fulfilled. Well, why does all this matter? Well, because the Galatian Christians came to faith in Jesus apart from the law. To return to the law, therefore, would be to backtrack. It would be easy to mistakenly think that promise and law are kind of competing in the way that Paul has been discussing uh, these matters. And that's basically what Paul addresses in our passage today. 
after which he explains why there's no need for the law for those who have believed in Christ Jesus. And with all of that backdrop in mind, let's read our text now. Galatians 3, verses 21 through 29. Paul says this. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's pray one more time and ask the Lord for understanding before we dive in. Heavenly Father, would you please show us your glory revealed in these verses by your Spirit. Help us not to only engage in intellectual arguments or philosophical exercises, but plant your word deep in our hearts that we would be renewed by it. We believe that you have spoken to us through your word and that everything you say is true. So would you please be gracious to reveal more of yourself to us in these verses, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. The main idea of these verses, if I were to summarize it, would be that the law was never given to save us, but to teach us of the one who can. The law was never given to save us, but to teach us of the one who can. And this passage, really all of chapter 3, could pretty much be summed up with a question. That question being, can we earn God's favor by doing good? Can we earn God's favor by doing good? Well, the answer, I think, is no, we can't. Uh, I'll just tell you that up front. I would even argue, though, that if we could earn God's favor by our good deeds, then we wouldn't worship a very powerful God. I think we would actually worship a small God. We wouldn't worship a perfectly righteous judge. We would be worshiping a God that served us, that could be directed by our own actions. But that's not the God of the Bible, friends. In order to demonstrate that, I want to show you three things from this text, just walking through the verses. So first, in verses 21 and 22, the law does not compete with promise. The law does not compete with promise. And Paul says this emphatically in typical Paul fashion. He asks a question and then provides the answer, sets himself up. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? He's already said that the, those under the law are under a curse in chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, he said that the law was given because of transgressions by identifying them. 
Uh, last week we talked about uh, how he uses this language and even in Romans says that the law was given to increase transgressions, uh, making them more evident and classifying them to us. Uh, this is true really for any law today when you think about it. Uh, for example, I consider myself to be, I think, a pretty decent driver. Uh, yeah, I have minimal accidents, uh, not very many tickets, uh, so I think I could do pretty well on the roads. Uh, but every now and then, or actually I should just tell you generally, I don't really look out for speed limit signs. I just don't really think to look for them very often. Uh, I just generally look at who, how fast people are going around me, and I kind of coast along. Uh, one time I was even pulled over, and the officer said, do you know how fast you were going? And I answered completely honestly, no, I don't. I have no idea. <laughs> and he told me how fast I was going, and I was speeding. Uh, but let's just say I have the suspicion as I'm passing other cars that I am breaking the speed limit. In my mind, what am I thinking? I might be breaking the speed limit right now. What happens if I get pulled over? Well, it's not really that clearly marked, this road. I'm not really sure. The speed limit could be higher. It could be lower. Uh, we'll just keep going and see what happens. I'll keep a lookout. But then, let's say I turn around a corner and I do see a speed limit sign, and it turns out I am going much faster than uh, what is written on that sign. And then I have a decision to make, right? Uh, my conscience has changed a little bit from that revelation of knowing the speed limit. I have to decide, do I willfully ignore this sign because I want to go faster, or I'm running late, or whatever it might be, uh, or do I slow down? If I get pulled over, I can no longer plead ignorance and simply say, well, I didn't know. I think that's the kind of way that the law increases our transgressions. It's like turning the volume up on our conscience. Uh, when we read the law, we get a window into the way God sees our actions. We see uh, our sins increase. We recognize sins that we perhaps weren't even aware of before that turns up the volume to our sins so that we can feel it. So is the law against promise if the law just seems to reveal sin to us and doesn't really help us towards salvation? Is the law counterproductive if it only enslaves, if it does not make us righteous? Paul raises this question uh, because that might be what's going through your mind. And it's important because in verse 20, he had just said that God was the author of the law. Uh, even though it was handed down through angels and Moses, he still said God is the author, God is one. So did God contradict his promises by giving the law? And Paul's answer is emphatically no. Uh, our translations, they say certainly not. Uh, but it could be translated in a number of different ways. Some have it, may it never be, uh, or others have it, uh, God forbid that be the case. Uh, this is how you know that Paul is one of the most passionate authors in the New Testament. This phrase he uses is used 15 times uh, in the New Testament as a whole. Paul uses them 13 out of the 15 times. Uh, okay, so Paul is a passionate man writing about these issues. But this kind of emphasis shows us how important it is as well that we don't think of the law as contradictory to the plans of God in any way. If the law was contrary 
to the promises of God, it would mean that God is not consistent. It would mean maybe that God changes or he makes mistakes, thereby breaking promises. It'd be a major breach of his character, and we would have reason to doubt his promises to us if that were the case. But praise be to God, that is not the case. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, Paul has already shown in his argument, uh, he he argued in a way that's called from the lesser to the greater. Uh, He says if man is not allowed to ratify a will after or change a will after it's been ratified, then certainly God will not uh, change or add to a promise once it has been made. He made that argument in chapter 3, verse 15. Well, in these verses, Paul's argument is similar. He says the law was never meant to give us life. It was never meant to be a righteousness-producing mechanism for us. Meaning, friends, if we are trusting in our own goodness... Or if we imagine that God accepts or rejects us based on our works, we are misunderstanding altogether the purpose of the law. Uh, There are examples of misunderstanding the law all throughout Scripture, but one that comes to mind is the rich young ruler. Uh, He comes to Jesus, you might remember, uh, and he asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus uh, basically told him to keep all the commandments, or rather, he told Jesus that he had kept all the commandments from his youth. And so Jesus says to sell all his possessions and then follow him. And says Jesus loved him before he told him this. And then the man went away sorrowful. And uh, Mark says he had many possessions, so he went away sorrowful. Uh, ironically, he revealed that he broke the first commandment that you shouldn't have any other gods before the one true God. Clearly, this man idolized his possessions and his wealth. But you see the confusion here. He thought, as long as I do everything that's commanded of me, I should be able to inherit eternal life. Yet he did not love God more than his things. He mistakenly thought of the law as a way to gain favor in the eyes of God rather than a way to get to know God himself, a way to love God. The point is this, the law was never meant to be a way that we are saved. The law only shows us that we need to be saved. The law prepares us in this way uh, to receive the promise on the basis of faith because we can't receive the promise through any other means. We can't earn a a promise made to us. And an honest self-assessment by the law will make your unrighteousness so plain uh, that you will only be able to look outside of yourself for salvation. Paul says clearly that righteousness would come by the law if it could give life. Well, the only problem is that the law doesn't give life. It only brings wrath. He says in verse 22, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise would be given to those who believe. He simply means that sin brings the knowledge of our bondage uh, and makes it apparent to us. The law is like an x-ray machine that uh, shows us what's underneath the skin. It shows our brokenness, thereby showing us the need for medical intervention. But the x-ray machine does nothing to actually mend what is broken. If you treat the x-ray machine like treatment itself then your problems won't be solved. In fact, they'll probably get worse. Uh, 
This is captured well uh, by Bunyan in his great work, Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, I mentioned a scene from Pilgrim's Progress last week. Another one came to mind this week. Uh, when Christian crosses paths with a man named Worldly Wisdom. And Christian has this great burden of his sin that he's uh, recognized and felt since reading the Word of God. It's been made clear to him, and he is so desperate to have his burden removed that he's willing to do anything to get it removed. And so he is on the narrow path on the road to Calvary. But he's intercepted by worldly wisdom, and worldly wisdom gives him some advice. He says, go to the city of morality. This is an easier way to relieve the burden. Go to the city of morality where you can meet my friend named Legality, who can remove your burden for you. Bunyan was really clever in his writing. Uh, um, Spurgeon read Pilgrim's Progress once every year, uh, and I aspire to do that as well. But every, every time I reread it, I, new things are popping out to me. But he recognized, Bunyan did, in writing this allegory of the Christian life, he's suggesting the way worldly people find a false kind of security in their legalism, uh, in their good deeds, or at least justifying or creating their own morality. Well, Christian takes the bad advice, unfortunately. He follows the direction of worldly wisdom, and worldly wisdom tells him he just has to go by this mountain to get to the house. And the mountain is called Sinai referring to the law given at Sinai under Moses. And as Christian goes closer to the mountain, uh, it gets taller and taller, and he realizes it's so steep and so tall that he fears that the, the mountain will fall and crush him. For those who have proper guilt, there's no peace in the law. Uh, there's only terror because it shows our sins to us. What happened to Christian next in the story is true of all of us. If we look at the law honestly, Christian says he felt the burden on his back was even heavier than it ever was before. The law or our good deeds do not save us from our sins. They show us uh, our sins even more clearly than before. And since the law serves the purpose of exposing sin rather than expunging it, it does not run contrary to the promise. It actually complements it. It contributes to God's plan for his people to fulfill the promises to Abraham in his offspring, which is Christ. The law was given by God for a time to serve an important purpose in pointing us to Jesus. And it's only when we understand this purpose of the law that it uh, that it, it's only when we misunderstand this purpose that it works against or contrary to the promises of God in the Bible. It's only when we twist the gospel message to include our works when God's grace is nullified. It's only when we try to create our own righteousness by relying on our works or by trusting in our own goodness rather than the person that God promised to send who fulfilled every aspect of the law. Two quick points of application uh, for us this morning. This is one of the reasons why we try to exercise uh, what we we call meaningful church membership. Uh, And by that, we mean we want to be careful to know who the members of this church are and to make sure that our professions of faith are credible, that we all believe the gospel of grace through faith and not by works. 
But it also means that we want to be intentional to pour into relationships in the church with, this, with a specific intent of helping to do each other's spiritual good. Our job is to regularly remind ourselves that God's favor is not earned by our deeds. Uh, God's favor or his love was set on us while we were still sinners, as it says in Romans 5 verse 8. This is why we talk about the gospel so much, because we need to hear it. We need to be reminded that if we are trusting in ourselves, it's a lost cause. The only one who can help us is Christ. We need to look away from ourselves and instead look up to Christ in heaven. We're prone to relying on ourselves by default. Reminding each other of the gospel not only corrects our thinking, but also provides comfort uh, and assurance. Uh, In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, when he found himself right next to Sinai, nearly towering over him, evangelists came and saved him, and he redirected him back to the right path. Uh, Friends, uh, pray that the Lord would use you in the lives of other church members uh, to redirect them away from trusting in themselves and instead to trust in Christ. A second point of application is just to simply guard yourself from self-reliance. We are the most prone in the world to hypocrisy and to legalism because the mysteries of God have been revealed to us in Christ through His Word. And so self-reliance can show up in all kinds of different ways. For example, uh, perhaps uh, fear to confess sins to another. I know that in my life, Satan has used my own pride as a way to chain my sin uh, to me. In my self-reliance, I've, I wanted to prove in the past that I was strong enough to kind of beat a sin on my own rather than ask others for help. Oh, dear friends, don't make that mistake. If you struggle, especially with internal sins like lust or covetousness or anger or deceit, know that the Lord placed other Christians in your life to help you. Lean on them and trust in Christ. So if the law does not compete with promise, what does it do? This is point two. The second thing that I want you to see in this passage is that the law was a temporary guardian. Uh, Not only does the law reveal sin to us, show us our need for a Savior, but Paul says the law was like a guardian for a period of time. What does that mean exactly? Uh, I don't think that the word guardian is uh, the best translation for us today uh, because when we think of guardian, we think of like a legal guardian. um, And that doesn't really do a whole lot for the illustration that Paul is making. Uh, But this word that he's using could also be translated as custodian or pedagogue or strict teacher. And in Paul's day, this was a specific person in the household of the family. Uh, These were basically like caretakers Uh, for families that they would hire to watch their youths, to watch their teenagers. Uh, They were kind of like private tutors, uh, although they were permitted to enforce physical discipline, uh, to correct. Uh, They were trusted to teach them and instruct them, but they were also trusted to protect them uh, when they were to go out in public. Uh, Specifically for young boys, they were to to protect them from uh, from cult prostitution in the temples. Uh, That was the culture that Paul is speaking into in the day. But in this context, Paul's pointing out, I think, two different features about the law being a guardian. 
Uh, one of the features is this kind of restraining uh, feature. You could say that the law serves the purpose of restraining us. Uh, that's exactly what these guardians did for these kids. They were to restrain them from misbehaving. Uh, they were to keep them in line in school, for example. And in restraining them, they provided necessary protection as well. So we can ask, in what ways does the law restrain or protect us? Well, it restrains us in the way that it provides boundaries for us to follow. Uh, it outlines right and wrong to us, good and evil. And insofar as the law is enforced, which it would have been in Israel's day, it would quite literally protect those under it uh, by administering proportional uh, punishments for crimes. Uh, for example, if someone were to steal something, a, a punishment was given, and out of fear of receiving that punishment again, uh, it was given, hopefully, to correct that behavior so that someone didn't steal again. Or, simply preemptively, someone would fear the punishment and never steal in the first place. In that way, the law restrains. The law gave order to the society. The law was a temporary watch guard, which was necessary for a time until true freedom was, pre was purchased. True freedom is accomplished uh, not by escaping a prison cell, but by trusting in the one who pays your bail. Therefore, the law was not to be a permanent measure, but a temporary means of restraining us while we hope in Christ. Uh, so some have spoken about this guardian aspect of the law as a kind of prison keeper or prison guard. One commentator used this illustration. And he said that the guard keeps the prisoner safe from outside threats by enforcing the rules of the prison. Now listen to the way he puts it. He says this, The law was all the while standing guard over its subjects, watching and checking every attempt to escape, but intending to hand them over in due time to the charge of faith. The law posts its ordinances, like so many sentinels, round the prisoner's cell. The cordon is complete. He tries again and again to break out. The iron circle will not yield. The deliverance will yet be his. The day of faith approaches. It dawned long ago in Abraham's promise. Even now its light shines into the dungeon, and he hears the word of Jesus. Thy sins are forgiven thee. Go in peace. Law, the stern jailer, has after all been a good friend. If it, has reserved for him, uh, if it has reserved him for this, it prevents the sinner escaping to a futile and elusive freedom. It's that kind of false freedom that worldly wisdom promised Christian and legality. The other use of the law that comes from this analogy of a guardian is that of a teacher, an instructor, uh, one who's responsible to instruct a student with knowledge and correction. And the law certainly does that. The precepts of God reveal to us the character of God. They show us what things the Lord values, what things please Him, and what things He hates. I'm, a too, I'm afraid that too many Christians today view the Old Testament or the law uh, as just a set of rules that only get in the way of enjoying life. Well, last week I gave you uh, a number, I believe, four reasons why Christians should continue to study the law. Uh, this week, I'm not going to repeat those. I'll simply provide an example for you of someone who cherished the law deeply. 
He says this, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's Psalm 119, verse 97 through 105. The law is a gift from God, and we should thank God for it. We should relish it. It's only if we try to gain our own righteousness by it that it will do us harm. Paul summarizes the reason for giving the law in verse 24. He says, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. If we recognize the law for what it is, it will prove not to be contrary to the promises of God, but will enhance our understanding of those promises. The law may feel like a harsh disciplinary at times, but understood rightly, the entire law is written on the tablet of grace. It's grace that the law was given for. It's grace that the law points us towards. It's a kindness of God to give us the law. And we who have been freed from it can praise God all the more, having a greater understanding of how needy we are. That brings me to verses 25 through 29.3. We're sons of God through faith, not the law. We're sons of God through faith, not the law. Uh, Paul says in verse 25, we're no longer under the guardian again. It doesn't mean that the law is not useful to us, but Paul is saying that the law was to be obeyed for a time, and that time is now passed with Christ's coming. Therefore, it's no longer required. Now, Now that Paul has teased out the differences between law and promise, between works and grace, he returns to the subject that he was originally responding to, the teaching of those who were adding to the gospel, requiring Gentile converts to be circumcised. They were implying that obeying the law was necessary for salvation and that thereby they weren't children of God unless they obeyed the law. Jews would have considered uh, either being a child of Abraham to be a child of God, just ethnically, or to obey the law to make you a child of Abraham and thereby a child of God. By requiring the Gentiles to be circumcised, they're basically telling them, you're not children of God unless you do this thing. But Paul says something astonishing in verses 26 and 27. He says, for in Christ Jesus... You're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul's response is the exact opposite of these Judaizers. He says, if you are in Christ, you are sons of God. If you have believed that the death and resurrection of Jesus was a sacrificial death, given to pay the penalty for your sin, then God adopts you into his family. He credits that faith as righteousness. 
In other words, if your baptism reflects what has happened in your heart as it should, that you have died to your old self, risen to new life in Christ, if your baptism is accurate, then you have put on Christ. And if you put on Christ, what more do you need? The language of putting on Christ is reminiscent of removing garments, filthy garments, and replacing them with pure garments. Oscar prayed about this earlier. It's language that was utilized by the prophets to explain our need for righteousness. Isaiah said, all our good deeds are like filthy rags, but in Christ our filthy rags are exchanged for His righteous robes. We have put on Christ. This entire section is completed with the sweeping statements in verses 28 and 29, where Paul basically says there's no distinction when it comes to salvation. Uh, R.C. Sproul, a dear brother, Presbyterian brother, who is now at home with the Lord, he summarized what these verses mean in a really helpful and uh, simple way. He simply said that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Everyone who comes to the cross stands on equal footing. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, meaning racial or ethnicity or culture. There's no distinction between slave or free, meaning social class or male or female gender, which is hugely significant in a culture that basically viewed women as sub-citizens. Paul doesn't mean to say that there aren't very uh, important and practical differences between uh, all of these people. He, in fact, he outlines distinct gender roles for the church and for the family and other letters. He instructs slaves and masters how to treat one another. But the point he's making here is that all people receive salvation the same way, by grace through faith in Christ. And pretty much any time you read that in Galatians, you can add to the end of it, and not works of the law by grace through faith, and not works of the law. We can follow the logic and just add to the list based on principle. It doesn't matter how wealthy or poor you are. It doesn't matter what kind of home you came from or grew up in. It doesn't matter what political views you hold. It doesn't matter whether you went to church your entire life or whether this is your first time in church this morning. We're saved not by our works, not by our merit, but by the blood of Jesus poured out for us. We're saved by Christ's righteousness. His obedience is what gains us access into heaven. It's credited to us if we turn from our sin, from our own self-reliance, our own pride, our own worship of ourselves and our own desires, and instead trust in Jesus alone. All are one in Christ because all must believe Him to be saved. You have been freed from sin, freed from the law that imprisoned you because of faith in Christ and nothing more. Perhaps you're here this morning and you say, I want that kind of freedom. I want that kind of forgiveness. I feel the weight and the guilt of my sin that you speak of when you say you read the law and it is evident. The volume is turned up and you feel it in your bones like a subwoofer. Well, friend, if that's you, simply ask that God would soften your heart even more. Ask that He would give you faith to trust in Christ's work alone. Pray that today and don't delay any longer. Christ could return at any time. 
And when he does, it will have been too late if you have not believed in him before then. If you have questions about what that might look like for you in your life, please feel free to talk to me afterwards at the door. I would love to speak more to you about that. Why does Paul keep bringing up this guy, Abraham? Well, because he's the father of the nation of Israel, the father of the Jewish people, and therefore Jews assumed the father of the people of God. But Paul says it's not following the law or being Jewish that makes you a child of Abraham. It's believing in Jesus. Those who receive the promise of eternal salvation are those who are Christ's. The single offspring God provided to fulfill his promises to Abraham is Jesus. To be a child of God is to be in many ways, then, a sibling of Christ. A few more points of application before we close. Don't let the law hinder you from going to the cross. Don't let the law hinder you from going to the cross, either because you feel you're not good enough or because you think you are good enough. Both of those things can hinder you from going to the cross. Your good deeds only lead to death. Uh, Jonathan Edwards described uh, good deeds like a web that a, a spider weaves and God's judgment just pummeling through them like a rock. Our good deeds don't save us. If anyone wants to be saved, we must be saved by grace through faith in Christ, who called himself the door to the sheepfold. I think uh, just about every sermon I have wondered if I should answer this question, (laughs) and I have only answered it a few times, uh, but Just in case you missed that time, you might be wondering, isn't faith a work of some kind? Isn't faith an an action? I mean, I know you say by grace through faith, but come on, isn't faith something that we have to do? Isn't that something that in some way we, in a sense, kind of earn salvation by doing ourselves? And I would simply say no, because faith is a gift received from God. If you read through the Bible, you'll find that faith always comes from God. So, friend, I spoke to you earlier, if you are feeling the Spirit's conviction, uh, then I would say that's the Lord already working in your heart. Uh, If you feel the guilt and shame from your sin, uh, that is, I think, the beginning seeds of faith, uh, beginning uh, to take root in the soil of your heart. Uh, Don't ignore it. Water it. Continue to pray and ask that it would grow in your heart. Uh, Faith is not a work that we do. It is a gift from God. And if it was not for his grace, we would always rebel from him. Don't let the law hinder you from going to the cross. Second, don't let Satan use the law against you. Many Christians burdened with sensitive consciences are prone to believing an anti-gospel, that God does not love us because of our sins, that we are unworthy of his love. Well, if that's you, then the good news is, you've at least learned what was already true. You're not worthy of his love. None of us are. That's the point. In love, he sought us. He gave us his grace. We're all unworthy, yet he forgives our trespasses if we follow him. Luther was tormented by the law. He encouraged others when he became a Christian who were battling with 
with this kind of, uh, it's another form of legalism, but fear and anxiety that comes from the law. He encouraged them this way. He said, here one must say, stop law. You have caused enough terror and sorrow. Then let the law withdraw. For it was indeed added for the sake of disclosing and increasing transgressions, but only until the point when the offspring would come. Once he is present, let the law stop disclosing transgressions and terrifying. Let it surrender its realm to another, that is, to the blessed offspring Christ. He has gracious lips, with which he does not accuse and terrify, but speaks better things than the law, namely, grace, peace, forgiveness of sins, and victory over sin and death. So no, we can't gain God's favor by anything that we do. We cannot sway his perfect judgment by our feeble efforts. And friends, that's a good thing. If we could, we wouldn't be serving a very powerful God. In his mercy, God provided the law to show us our sin, to draw us closer to himself, to increase the volume of our transgressions so as to push us into believing in his son, who though he was tempted as we are, never once sinned. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in this truth, that if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise for your mercy shown to us through Christ. We thank you that you did not simply leave us to ourselves, for the law only brings death. But it's you who works righteousness. You are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your steadfast love to those who fear you. We give you praise humbly because you know our frame. You remember that we are like dust. Help us to trust not in ourselves, not in our own efforts, but in your son Jesus, whose blood was shed for us.